0: Open the inspired Word of God with me to Genesis chapter 17, the inspired Scriptures given by God and preserved through many generations that we may have for our children and our children's children. Thank you, God, for your precious Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Amen. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1 is a text I used last Lord's Day, in which we will just refresh ourselves by hearing it again, and then move forward. When Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Abraham had walked before God for many years before Genesis 17.1. But God came to him again to renew that personal relationship that he had with Abraham. And the Lord came to us last Sunday by this text and other texts to renew his relationship with us, that we would walk before him and that we would be perfect. Abraham was a great man. You read the Hall of Faith last night in your preparatory reading for today's assemblies in Hebrews chapter 11. The world can have the professional football hall of fame in Canton, Ohio. And it can have its baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown. But we have a hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And it lists the elders of Israel and their great faith and the things they did by faith. And Abraham has more verses dedicated to him than any other man in the hall of faith. He has more feet in the hallway. He has more display cases of trophies than any other man in the hall of faith. When we turn the page to Genesis chapter 18, we find Abraham doing what most of you men are doing. And what the rest of you men that are not doing yet, we trust shall be doing soon. And that is being a father and a leader of his household. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, the same God that appeared to him in 17.1 said about him in verse 19, For I know him. Praise God. Does he know you like this? For I know him. God is speaking to himself. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Amen. Does that verse sound like Psalm 101? It does indeed, doesn't it? I know him that he will command his household after him. David said in Psalm 101 that he would walk with a perfect heart within his house and that he would cut off all evildoers from his house and that he would lead them in the way of righteousness and that he would practice mercy and judgment. Here it's called justice and judgment in Genesis 18:19. My brethren, today, a simple lesson, springing from Genesis 17.1, and that is the emphasis that the Bible places on us giving our very best to be the very best in following and serving God, that when we walk before Him, and when we seek to find ourselves perfect before Him, that we do it with our might. This is what the Lord expects. This is taught in both Testaments. And we want to learn from it this day. Abraham is one of those witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11 that Hebrews chapter 12 tells us are sitting in the stadium of life watching us. When the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we have a great cloud of witnesses, it means that you are on a quarter mile track in a stadium And all the illustrious elders of the Old Testament are sitting in the bleachers. And it is just a cloud of faces, because that's all you can distinguish from the distance of being down in the field. The Apostle knew about Greek stadiums. The Apostle knew about athletic events. And he compares the Christian life to athletic events in several texts of Scripture. But Abraham is in that cloud of witnesses, and we want to be a father like Abraham was. Abraham didn't have a little household like you have. Abraham had 318 servants that were trained for battle. Right. So that when the four kings came and took his nephew Lot captive, he was able to arm his 318 trained servants and pursue those four kings and with God's blessing, defeat the four kings and bring back Lot, his wife, his children, and all that he possessed. That's a big household. But God knew one thing about Abraham and his household. No matter how large, they were going to keep the way of the Lord or He'd have thrown them out. Right. May we be as dedicated. We have a race to run. And that race we're told to run with patience. Patience is understood by some Christians falsely. When it says to run our race with patience, that doesn't mean we sit around waiting for God to do something. Patience... In that kind of a context, in our English Bibles, means endurance. Let us run our race with patience, meaning endurance. We don't quit. We don't tire. We don't pace ourselves because we're lazy. We run it with endurance. We put the next foot in front of the other foot, and we keep moving forward toward that finish line. The Apostle Paul would say, I press." Toward that finish line. And the Lord wants us to run a race with endurance. Not giving up. There are things every day. To cause you to be discouraged. And to think about giving up. But it's a long distance race. Until he comes for us. Your life is nothing but a picnic. Compared to Abraham's. Abraham didn't have a place to live. He didn't know for sure what God was doing in his life. He wandered around like a nomad. For 100 years. He was 75 when he was told he would have a seed. At 100, he finally had it. That's 25 years. He never had a place to live. He never saw the land of Canaan in his possession. He didn't really care. Because, as any person who's read the New Testament knows, that Abraham, the father of Israel, knew that that little wasteland called Israel at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, has no purpose in God's plan whatsoever. Abraham knew that because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that he knew he was a sojourner, a stranger, and a pilgrim on earth, seeking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a heavenly country. He wasn't looking for that desert wasteland called Israel. He was looking for heaven. Why do you think heaven is called is called Abraham's bosom. Because that's where Abraham is. Abraham never owned enough ground to put the sole of his foot on. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon says that. The only property he ever bought was a little plot of ground so that he could get Sarah's bones underground. Abraham wasn't looking for Israel. And there's all these Old Testament pretend Jews around today following Jewish fables, that that piece of wasteland at the eastern end of the Mediterranean is something special in the sight of God. They are still infatuated with Mount Sinai. They're still infatuated with an earthly Jerusalem. And they're still infatuated with the most God-hating people on earth. Christ-hating people, excuse me. Christ-hating people on earth, the Jews. They miss the fact that the New Testament opens up our eyes to realize that the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and the prophets is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in the heavenly Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul would compare the earthly Jerusalem to Mount Sinai. Galatians chapter 4. He would say to Jews in Hebrews chapter 12, we are come unto Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. God called His people out of that Jerusalem before he leveled it to the ground and tore that temple apart stone by stone because their temple was in heaven. Amen. Where there is a great church, our mega church that we refer to. The spirits of just men made perfect Amen. and an innumerable company of angels and the blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. We have a heavenly city. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, woman, woman, your fathers don't even know who they're worshiping. And worship isn't going to take place in Jerusalem much longer. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our eyes are to heaven like Abraham's eyes were to heaven. He didn't care about Canaan. He knew the fulfillment of the promises was in heaven, not on earth. So much confusion, just as the Apostle warned Titus, there would be Jewish fables. The Israel of God and the Jews of God are Jews and Gentiles brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ and His cross. And we are made the temple of God in this little church building. We are one of the temples of God on earth that are part of the kingdom of God where we meet with the God of heaven. And He's coming for us soon. We are the delight of his soul. We Gentiles have been brought in and made fellow citizens with the saints. There is no longer any difference between Jews and Gentiles, and that's the whole message of the New Testament. Praise God and thank you, Lord. Abraham is such a great man of faith, because though he wandered around and lived in tents his whole life, he knew that he had a land that was waiting for him, and it was heaven. May we run our race with that same conviction. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 and see our brother Paul exhorting us to follow the great men of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3. I referred to this verse last Lord's Day, but it's important for us to remember it. We want to find the great men of Scripture and set them as our examples to follow. It's not just our idea to use Bible stories, it's to follow our beloved brother Paul. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. The apostle Paul in Philippians three seventeen tells the brethren at Philippi, I want you together as a united church to follow me just like he told the corinthians in 1 corinthians 11:1 be ye followers of me even I, as i am a follower of jesus christ we cannot follow jesus christ directly in a number of aspects of his life because he was a minister of the circumcision made under the law and old testament time reformation between john and the destruction of jerusalem right. we don't get circumcised for religious purposes jesus did we don't submit to Pharisees because they sit in Moses' seat. Jesus did. Matthew 23, verses 1-3. through 3. We follow Paul because Paul did things Jesus didn't do. Jesus kept the Passover 34 times. We do not keep the Passover. We keep its fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. So Paul said, be ye followers of me. And he said it right here to the Philippians. Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. Every person that lives like Paul, we are supposed to set as our example. Now the Lord Jesus Christ in his character is what we want to emulate the most. But in his practice, he was made under the law, and we are not under the law. We are under grace. Different than Jesus Christ was born and lived. He brought us grace and truth, but he taught it to us through his apostles. Paul said that he wants us to follow him, and he wants us to find other men that follow Paul so that we have examples, daily examples of how we ought to live. How did Paul live? Look above at verse 12. This is in the middle of his long description of counting all things but loss and all things but dung for knowing Jesus Christ better. In the middle of this long explanation, that runs from verse 8 to 14. I want verses 12 through 14. Paul would say, Not as though I had already attained. Now he's already in prison. This is toward the end of his life. And he says, Not as though I had already attained. We would say, Paul, you have attained a great deal. He would say, Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. When we use the word apprehend, we usually mean to arrest someone. A criminal has been apprehended by the authorities. The Apostle Paul is describing the Lord Jesus Christ arresting him. Apprehending him and getting his attention and committing him and putting him to work for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul did that and paul knew that he had been apprehended for that work but he did not believe that he had apprehended yet he had not fully fulfilled his purpose in the world and he was committed to pressing on so he says in verse brethren in verse 13 brethren i count not myself to have apprehended you may think something highly of me but i do not but this one thing i do forgetting those things which are behind And reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press. There is a mark. It's called a finish line. They draw a string and hold it over the finish line, the exact distance of the race. And runners that want to win are pressing toward that mark. They are leaning forward and driving with all their might. And at the last moment, they're even thrusting out their chest and bowing forward to hit that finish line. And the Apostle Paul was not going to relax in his race until he hit that finish line. And then he could say, I have finished my course. Amen. We have a course. And we want to do it our best. We want to do it like the Apostle Paul did it. Here he is using running as a metaphor and a comparison for our Christian lives. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here he does it again to the Corinthians. Greatness in the sight of God is what we want to set our goal for. We do not want to relax and be ordinary, average, mediocre, slothful, restful Christians. We want to be ambitious and pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The man who touches the string first gets the prize. The Apostle Paul would not settle for anything less than the best. To be second was a joke to him. To be second is to be a loser. Listen to how he writes. First Corinthians nine twenty four. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Don't you know that? Don't you know that about the Olympic Games, Corinthians? Don't you know that about the Greek Games? So run. I want you to run that way, that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. Not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This is the Apostle Paul describing greatness in the sight of God that he had set for a goal of his own life. He first of all asks you, don't you understand what happens in a race? If it's an eight-lane track, and it's a sprint, There are eight runners. They run all. All eight run. But only one gets the prize because second place is to lose. And that's how Paul looked at his Christian life. So run I. That is how I run. So is an adverb meaning in the way that's been described. So run I. And so should you run. And we want to learn this and we want to press. You you fathers, God has given you a race. It's an endurance race. It doesn't get over in one day. Right. It doesn't get over in a week or a year. It's an endurance race. Who are the slothful, lazy babies who will not finish their race? Grow up and quit yourself like men. Like First Corinthians 16 tells us. It's a long distance race. It doesn't end. Sherry and I are looking forward to Jonathan saying goodbye in three days. Bye-bye, Jonathan. We're looking forward to it. It's the end of 34 years of children. Does it mean our job as parents has ended? Oh, no. Instead of seven children, there's now 14. Oh, but I forgot the 12 grandchildren. There's 26. It doesn't end. It's a long-distance race. Wife, we have a long-distance race to run. And parents sitting on the row with her, you have a long-distance race to run. And you've run it farther than I have, a lot farther. But we all have a long-distance race to run. And for a moment, I'm speaking to fathers. Where are the excellent fathers? You don't get discouraged and quit. You don't get discouraged and give up. You don't stick your head in the sand because we have a long-distance race to run. Don't you know that they which run in the race run all? Everyone that's in the race runs, but only one gets the prize, and that's the way you're to run. Each one of you fathers should be striving to be the best father in the entire church. This is what the Word of God tells us. The Apostle Paul did not settle for mediocrity. The Apostle Paul did not give A's for participation. You know, today, when our little children... Sometimes go and play in athletic events. They get trophies for good participation. Well, sweet. That is such a corrupt way of thinking. That's why we have such a mediocre nation. The whole nation is addicted to mediocrity. In the Bible, it's excellence. It's pressing. It's winning. And second place is losing. You say, well, not everyone can win. But you can run like it. That's the whole issue. You can run like it. And do you know what? In the sight of God, everyone can win. Let me remind you that the man with five talents, that's the man that could run 100 meters in 9.52. And the man with two talents, that's the man that could run 100 meters in 13.5. The man that could run it in 9.52 could have lunch before the second man would finish the race. But do you know what they both hear from the God of heaven? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because he doesn't care. He knows the abilities he's given you, and he doesn't care about the difference between you and someone else. He just wants to know that with, with the abilities he's given you, and the opportunities he's given you, you are running your race all out. And you take what he's given you and you multiply it. Because you apply yourself diligently. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Look at Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-seven. Psalm 37, 37, Mark the perfect man. There are men in life that we are to find and mark. Mark the perfect man. What did God say to Abraham? I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. David is said to have been perfect in a number of cases. Everybody wants to know, what does the word perfect mean? You know I can't be perfect. Yes, I know you can't be perfect. And you know you can't be perfect. So why do you want to question the word perfect? as soon as we confess our sins, we're perfect again. The Bible says that David was perfect and God couldn't find another king that was as perfect as David. But we've got somewhere between 7 and 10 sins listed in the Old Testament about David. Do you know what they're all there for? To comfort you that you can be perfect. You say, but I've got a sin you wouldn't believe. So? David had a few. He doesn't believe. Praise the God of heaven. He loves sinners. Jesus is the friend of losers and sinners. And He makes them great if they will take the grace of God that's bestowed upon them and apply themselves diligently. You want to talk about sin? The Saul of Tarsus had killed Christians. He had forced Christians to blaspheme under torture. He had thrown them into prison. He had done, as He told King Agrippa, many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Was He perfect? In the definition of God, Amen and easily. By the grace of God. And... But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, you are what you are. But let's not let the grace of God be bestowed upon you or me in vain. Amen. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-seven. Mark, the perfect man. This is the same as Philippians three, seventeen. Find those that are following Christ and following Paul and follow them. Mark, the perfect man, and behold the upright. Watch him. Watch his life. For the end of that man is peace. And there's different measures of peace in our own assembly. Why? Because some keep winning their race. And others quit. And it will always be that way. That is why in Philippians chapter 3, if we'd have kept reading the very next verse, there's this crescent moon, this, this half circle there, a parenthesis. And it covers two verses, 18 and 19 where Paul would say about the Philippian church, but there are many who are belly worshippers, right. who mind earthly things, and who never amount to anything with their lives. Right after verse 17, where he said, Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so that you have us for an example. Just like this text right here. We want to follow those. God recognizes the difference between five pounds and two pounds. We have three goals today. We want to see the character of great men. We want to commit ourselves to be great like them for the glory of God and for the furtherance of His kingdom and to please Him, not for our vain glory. And we want to see its reward. Remember, with the God of heaven measuring character and conduct, any Christian can be great. it It doesn't matter what intelligence you are. It doesn't matter what wealth you have or what socioeconomic level you are in our society, it's how diligent are you in applying the spiritual things of God's Word. It doesn't matter whether you're a five-talent Christian, a five-pound Christian, or a two-talent or two-pound Christian. The Lord doesn't care about your body type, personality, or anything else. He cares about your diligence and zeal in matters of righteousness and spiritual truth. The Lord knows our frame. Praise His holy name. I love Psalm 103 that tells me, like as a father pitieth his children so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. I'm thankful that He pities us. And so He measures us by a standard sometimes different than we measure ourselves. We measure ourselves more strictly sometimes than God does. There are more that measure themselves more loosely than God does. Does the Bible say in James 5.16 that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are? You mean that Elijah could get bent out of shape over little things in his life that Elijah could say, it'd be better for me to be dead? And does the Lord know that we're subject to like passions just like Elijah? Did He ever sit under a juniper tree and say, I'm the only one left that cares about you and I might as well die? Do we ever get depressed like Elijah? Does God know we get depressed like Elijah? Can we still be like Elijah? Yeah, He didn't quit. He got up from that juniper tree and the Lord gave him a little lunch. The lunch was decent in nutrition. He went 40 days in the strength of that meat. And he went 40 days to the mount of God and God spoke to him in a still small voice and took care of Elijah. And we can be the same way. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't give us grounds to try to act like Elijah every day. That means that when we do fall into the temptation, we get out of it. And remember that God will forgive us and receive us. I want to talk about excellence with you this morning. What do we know about Elisha that you love? What have I taught you about Elisha that you love? When Elijah said to him, you know that I have to leave you. God's going to take me to heaven. I have to leave you. Let's go for a walk. They came to Jordan River. Elijah took his mantle and smote the waters. They split. Elijah and Elisha walked through the Jordan River on dry ground. And they went a little ways, and Elijah turned to Elisha and said, What do you want from me before I go? What's a real man going to say? What's a real Christian going to say? I hope that you say what Elisha said. And I hope that you have the boldness to pray like Elisha. Do you know what Elisha said? Now he was saying this to the most spirited man that God had ever given Israel. Elijah was a very intense, spirited powerful, bold man. You are all familiar with him calling fire down from heaven on an altar of God after he had made fun of the prophets of Baal. That is one event in his life. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And and John the Baptist was one spirited man. But Elisha, the young man, said to the old prophet, I want a double portion of your spirit. What? What? Second Kings chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. I want a double portion of your spirit. Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. Amen. Amen. Are you going to ask hard things of the Lord? The Lord loves you asking hard things. Right. Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing, but if you see me leave, God's going to give you your petition. Chariot of fire. Comes out of heaven. And do you know what the first word is in our King James Bible? It tells you it appeared. Do you know what it means when something appears? It means that you see it. And it says a chariot of fire appeared out of heaven and it grabbed Elijah up and carried him off to heaven and his mantle fell to the ground and it says Elisha saw it. Do you know what that meant? Elisha had twice the spirit of Elijah. Elijah's gone into heaven. He picks up that mantle. Well, I guess I ought to go home and tell the rest of the prophets that he's gone. He comes back to the Jordan River, looks at that mantle. He's never done this before in his life. He smacks the water and says, where is the God of Elijah? The the river splits and he walks through. You say, how did he have twice the spirit of Elijah? I'll tell you how. Elijah had to work pretty hard to raise the dead. Elijah had to go up into an upper room and lay himself out on a young boy and he just had to work and work and work. I speak somewhat as a fool for your lesson. To raise a man from the dead, a boy from the dead. Elisha was buried in a hole. And sometime later there was a battle. And the enemy, one of the enemy was killed by the Israelites. And they took the dead enemy and threw him into a hole that was nearby as they were fleeing from the Israelites. And that poor enemy guy that was as dead as a doornail fell into that hole and landed on the bones of Elisha and came to life. Elisha could raise a man from the dead when he was dead. That's in the brethren. How did all that get started? Where am I going with that rabbit trail? Give me a double portion of thy spirit. Anything less than that is being a lazy, compromising Christian. Give me a double portion of Thy Spirit. Let us press, like Elijah did, to be the very best that we can. The highest ambition for our lives is to grow in favor with God and men. Not to stay the same. To grow! Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. He closed out the second epistle by saying... That he wanted us to GROW in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's growth. Why would we settle to be average Christians or to have an average church? Embrace excellence. Let's be the best. Let's be David in Psalm 101. Let's be Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. Let's be Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. Let's be Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We're gonna face difficulties. And we will often, but we need to recall the race and the prize that is set before us and win it. Each day provides us an opportunity for the goal of excellence and to practice temperance toward it. We are not talking about ungodly emulation. Emulation is to compete with another person, to equal them or excel them for your own praise. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about the praise of God and pleasing Him. Paul wasn't arrogant when Paul said... But I am what I am by the grace of God. That was after he had said in 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, the very verse in front of that, he had said this about himself. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It is not even right, it's not fit or appropriate for me to even be an apostle. But I labored more abundantly than they all. That is the balance we want. It's by the grace of God. He knew He was least, but He knew He worked the hardest. We can know that we're the least. God will come to the man who thinks He's the least. And yet we ought to work the hardest with what God's given us in our lives and what He's called us to do. What are you the best at? What are you confident that you're the best at? What do you seek the most? What do you love the most? What motivates you the most? What do you set your time priorities for? Where are you most eager to spend time or money? They should be spiritual things. They should be kingdom things. They should be the things of Christ. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Follow one more Bible character with me before we break. Luke chapter 1. This is the one the Lord provoked me with. Because there's a great statement made about him, and then there's a great deal of comfort given in the same verse. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, the angel is speaking to Zacharias, the old man with no children, and telling him he's going to have a son. Luke 1.15, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, which was an exceptional diet for an Israelite. Jesus drank all the time. That's why He was called a wine-bibber. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. John was a Nazarite and followed the Nazarite provision here in this verse, as one consecrated to the Lord. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from His mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall He turn to the Lord their God. He shall go before Him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John the Baptist. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And then it describes his life. He was committed to one one object for his life. One accomplishment in his life that was of primary importance. And that was baptizing and identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah of God sent to Israel. His whole life wrapped up in that one event that took place when he was 30 years of age. When he told the Jews that came out from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judah that his cousin Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and the Messiah of God. This is John the Baptist. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. This is John the Baptist. He shall come in the spirit and power of Elias. What's Elias in the New Testament? Elijah. When a Jah comes through the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's changed in its spelling. Joshua becomes Jesus. Elijah becomes Elias. Elisha becomes Eliseus, Isaiah becomes Isaiah, And so forth. Look at Malachi chapters 3 and 4. And let's remind ourselves about this man. There are so many errors about John the Baptist and about Elijah the prophet. There are so many futurists waiting for Elijah the prophet to come back that Jesus Christ can't come back to earth until Elijah and Moses make some appearing. Unbelievable! Where in the world and what book are they reading? What confusion! Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Two people are coming. The Lord is going to come to his temple, but there's going to be a messenger that comes before him. Now this verse is quoted many times in the New Testament. Do you know who these two people are? And when they came? John the Baptist is the messenger. Jesus is the one that com- is the Lord coming to His temple, and they both came 2,000 years ago. Then we go to chapter 4. In between these verses are describing the judgment that God was going to bring upon Jerusalem and upon the Jews for their wickedness. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Here's where they go. They are so simple in their understanding because they refuse to submit to the New Testament and because they are in love with Jewish fables. They believe that Elijah is literally going to come back to earth and second, that this great and dreadful day of the Lord is some future judgment of the earth. No and no. And He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with a curse." Now, we just read that someplace, didn't we? Did we just read that in Luke one fifteen through 15-17 about John the Baptist? Amen. Elijah the prophet is John the Baptist and he's already coming. And if you don't believe that, then you're an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the New Testament. Now, let me show you in two places plainly, though I have already shown you in one place plainly. The angel told Zacharias that this son of yours is going to fulfill this prophecy. But let's go to Matthew chapter 11. We want to be great like John the Baptist. But while we're on John the Baptist, I want to remind you about this man. I do not want you to be misled thinking that Elijah needs to come. Elijah has already come 2,000 years ago and the Lord has already come to His temple and He has already brought the great and dreadful day of the Lord upon the people of Israel. That prophecy has been fulfilled for 2,000 years. There are other prophecies that tell about the end of the earth that we are waiting for and the Lord coming for us in His second coming. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, As they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Matthew eleven seven: What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Why did you city slickers all wander out into the wilderness? What were you looking for? Some weeds being blown around by the wind? Verse 8. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Were you looking for somebody dressed well? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. You shouldn't have been out in the wilderness looking for somebody important that would be in a king's palace. Verse 9. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Malachi 3.1. Verse 11. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We will, of course, come back to that verse in a moment. But I want twelve. Twelve. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, everyone here, will you receive truth from Jesus Christ? And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Most men don't have ears to hear, so they can't hear that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet, so they're still looking for Elijah the prophet, and the whole prophetic part of the Bible is turned upside down and inside out because they will not submit to, and if ye will hear it, this is Elias. Amen. When the Son of God opens Scripture, our hearts ought to burn with joy. Amen. It doesn't matter who says otherwise. I don't care that C.I. Schofield was so confused because he was a Jew and was a Jewish lover and a promoter of Jewish fables that he would deny that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah. So what? So what if the whole world is against us? We submit to Jesus Christ teaching truth. If he will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear... Let him hear. Jesus even knew during his ministry that most men didn't have ears. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Thank you, Lord, for making things so simple. The great and terrible day of the Lord. I wonder why John the Baptist burst on the scene, and when the Pharisees came out to see him at the Jordan River, he said, what are you here for? Bring forth fruits meet for repentance, for the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And he is going to cut it down and cast it into the fire. I am talking about one coming after me that is greater than all. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost, Pentecost, and with fire, destruction of Jerusalem. And so runs the whole New Testament about that great event that the Jew lovers don't want to talk about because it was the end of that nation. Matthew chapter 17, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mount with Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah appear to them. They speak. Peter opens his mouth and says some things foolishly. God the Father thunders from heaven and puts Peter on His face and says, this is My beloved Son. Hear ye Him. As they were coming down, verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead, and then it was written in the gospel accounts, and it was written in Second Peter chapter one. Verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, "Why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? Why do the seminary boys all say that Elijah has to first come? We just saw him, but no one else has seen him, and you've just told us, we can't even tell anybody else that we saw him. Why do the seminary boys, the scribes, the ones who worked in the Word of God, the ones who sat there all day with a quill pen and wrote the Scriptures and copied them, why do they say that Elijah has to come first? Verse 11, Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew Him not, but have done unto Him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that He spake unto them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah that was going to come. What was the great and terrible day of the Lord that John the Baptist warned the nation about? Jesus was going to burn that stinking nation up. The enemies that hung Him on the cross... He came back and tore their city apart. It was the worst tragedy that has ever fallen on any city and any nation in the history of the world. There is nothing in World War II that even comes close to what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. What do you think was bad in World War II? Hiroshima? Nagasaki? The 70,000 that died in one second? How about being under siege until you're eating your children to fulfill the prophecies of Deuteronomy 28? How about 1.1 million dying in the siege of Jerusalem and the rest being put in chains and taken to the salt mines of Egypt, Deuteronomy chapter 28, or hauled through the city streets of Rome as the trophies for Titus' victory over the Jews, that insolent nation that rebelled against an empire a million times more powerful than they. And that had crucified the Lord of glory. What did Jesus Christ say about them? He stood looking at the city of Jerusalem and he said, The day is coming in which an enemy is going to dig a trench around you and keep you in on every side and he's going to tear you down and level you flat with the ground. Why? Because you knew not the day of visitation by the Son of God. This is my Savior. My Savior is not some begging John Lennon hippie type that's begging anyone. My Savior opens and no man shuts. He shuts the door and no man opens. And he preached that nation for three and a half years and he had John the Baptist preaching before him and those apostles and went preaching and he told them, when you see the armies encompass the city of Jerusalem, get out and hide in the hills of Judea because the desolation of the city is now nigh. This is John the Baptist. This is Elijah, the prophet that was for to come. Jesus said, he's already come and they wouldn't receive him. This is the truth of the gospel. Now what do we want? We want to turn back to Matthew 11 and close. Matthew 11 and verse 11. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Among them that are born of women. Now how many men are there in the world that are born of women? Most of you. Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If we go to Luke chapter 7 and find these same words, verses 27-28, we find out that what's under consideration here is John the Baptist as a prophet. John the Baptist's ministry was so narrow and he understood so little that even the least prophet, the least preacher of the New Testament knows more than John. And even though it may be referring to John as a prophet and these as prophets and preachers, the least saint in the New Testament, not the least, because there are some saints that don't know anything. But an average saint who understands the elementary facts of the Gospel, knows more than John the Baptist knew. What did John the Baptist know? That when he was standing in the River Jordan, and he would see the Spirit of God come down on Jesus' head. This is what God told him. When you see the Spirit of God descend upon a man, then you can know that that is the Son of God. John saw the Holy Spirit descend, Point his finger, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one I've been preaching about. He identified him, and his ministry was over. He didn't get to preach about redemption. He didn't get to preach about justification. He didn't get to preach about adoption. He didn't know those things. Those things were yet to come, and were given to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know them, and if you know them, you know more than John knew. When John was in prison at the end of his life, he sent messengers to Jesus. Do you know what he asked? You know what he asked? He said, "He said, well, I'm hearing a lot of great things about you. Are you the one that's supposed to come or do we look for another? Have you ever lost all your confidence in Jesus Christ like poor John did? But John did what God called him to do. Right. Stand in the Jordan River and prepare a people for the Lord and baptize the Lord Jesus Christ and identify Him as the Messiah of God. If you, now you say, What what did you go to John for? Because of all those born of women, there's none greater. Nevertheless, nonetheless, a little preacher of the New Testament that knows what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and what we have in Him is greater than John the Baptist. And if you know the things of the Gospel this day about Jesus Christ being sent to die for our sins and is the coming king of glory, and has adopted us and broken down the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles, and brought about our adoption, if you know that he's sitting at the right hand of God, glorified forevermore, and coming again, if you know those simple, basic facts of the gospel, you're greater than John. This is the greatness in the sight of God that we want. We want to see John's role. Our role is different. I thank God for our role. I thank God that my life was not so limited like John the Baptist, though he was a greatest prophet, that we've been shown so much on this side of the cross and that we can be greater than John. The Apostle Paul would remind us to press and to follow men that gave themselves to the service of Jesus Christ. Let us not be average Christians. Let us be exceptional Christians. May Jesus Christ be praised.